Might have to break out my short sleeve shirts. All right, if you guys have your Bibles with you tonight, let's open up to the book of Isaiah. We're going to see, we may actually be able to close the section tonight. We'll see. You know, everything is God willing and sometimes it doesn't work out. But what we've been going through, when we look at the book of Isaiah, guys, Isaiah is going to divide into three portions. We're in that first section, and we're in a section within that section. So let's be reminded of how it breaks down. The, the first 35 chapters of the book of, of Isaiah are going to break down like this. He's going to begin, in the first six chapters, he was focused on Judah. Remember we talked about, this is during the period of time when Israel was divided in two. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Southern kingdom is Judah. Northern kingdom was Israel. Southern kingdom was godly. Northern kingdom was less godly. Northern kingdom, in fact, never had a decent king who followed the Lord, who desired to, to really do and live his life out for the Lord. Southern kingdom had some. Okay? They, neither kingdom was perfect, but the southern kingdom was doing a little bit better. The Bible tells us that those who desired to worship the Lord their God, they went to Judah. To worship because Jerusalem was in Judah. Those who didn't really want to follow the teachings of the Lord, they went north to Israel, to the northern kingdom. So the first six chapters, God's dealing with Judah, the southern kingdom. Just because they're the southern kingdom didn't mean that they were perfect. And the southern kingdom is the one that's going to ultimately go into captivity to Babylon. That's where we get the story of Daniel from. During that captivity. So the first six chapters are aimed at them. Then from 7 till 12, we're focused on Israel. Zooms in to to what's going on with the northern kingdom. Now we're in the section from 13 to 23. We'll see if we get to 23. We're starting on 20, so there's a shot. From from 13 to 23 is the judgment of the nations. Now God's going to specifically look at and deal with judgments concerning the nations surrounding both Israel and Judah. So that's where we find ourselves tonight. That's the breakdown of where we are. And we are specifically going to take a look at chapter 20. So if you got Isaiah, open up to Isaiah chapter 20. And we'll take a look at this first section. Now, it begins like this. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon was the king of Assyria, sent him. And he fought against Ashdod and took it. That gives us our date, 711 BC. 711 BC, that occurred. That's the time frame that we're looking at right here. It says, now at the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go and remove the sackcloth from your body. Take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. This is a section where the Lord calls Isaiah to walk naked. And we're going to see, arguably, he walks naked for three years. Now, we're all thankful that we're not called as a prophet of God. It's not the only thing God ever called his prophets to do. Isaiah, yeah, you're especially thankful, huh? Isaiah, listen, Isaiah was called to walk naked. Ezekiel was called to lay on one side in his underbritches. Uh, Hosea was called to marry a prostitute. All of these proved to be examples from God, living examples for what was going to take place. So as the Lord is, is laying out here for Isaiah, he becomes an example to the Egyptians. Listen, 
And it goes on in verse 3, And the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so the king of Assyria led away the Egyptians as, as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So Isaiah walking around becomes an example. Now, commentaries are divided. People much smarter than I are divided whether he walked the entire three years naked or there were specific times when he was naked to be an example to the Egyptians. doesn't really make any difference. Either way, he was at least naked part of the time, which is a scary thought. Anyways, in and of itself. Why was he naked? Because when the Assyrians would come and take Egypt, which they did, when the Assyrians came and took Ethiopia, which they did, fulfilling the prophecy, the first thing the Assyrians would do would strip the people naked and lead them back to Assyria naked. When they arrived in Assyria, they would face many possible uh, uh, trials. For example, they could be skinned alive, they could be put on skewers or spears through their entire body and set around the city, or they could be cast into the animals as game. Whatever the case, they were not going to be treated well by the Assyrians. And so God goes to, is there some measure to which God won't go to get our attention? I mean, let's face it. A naked old prophet walking around town saying, hey, this is what's going to happen to you guys. This is what the Lord is laying out for you. God's trying to get their attention. He's trying to, to call out to them to hear because the judgment was coming. The judgment was sure, and it did take place. Again, 711 B.C. is when Ashdod was conquered, and a few years later we see Assyria. Remember, the Assyrian kingdom reigned for 700 years. Now, you want to put that in perspective? What well, we've been a country for a little better than 200. So the Assyrian kingdom ruled the world for 700 years until the Babylonian kingdom rose up. And the Babylonian kingdom then ruled the world for the next period of time. As we saw when we went through the book of Daniel, the several different kingdoms that the Lord laid out for us that would take place, uh, leading us all the way up to the end time. So as we go on, he says in verse 5, Then they shall be afraid. And ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. What? Who's the they? Folks, the they are Judah. The southern kingdom had an alliance with Egypt and Ethiopia. Their hope was that when the Assyrian nation came after them, because they stood together with Egypt and Ethiopia, they would be able to prevail. But God said, listen, they're going to be drug away naked. And Judah's going to be left alone. And so the Lord says, listen, you're putting your trust in the wrong things. Have you ever had things that you placed your trust in only to see God remove at least your faithfulness or your faith in that whatever you were trusted? There was a period of time in my life where I had a rather large retirement account. I worked for a uh, Southern California contractor that painted freeways. <clears throat> and we made prevailing wage, sometimes the wage at the time, was, which was early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, $38 an hour was pretty good wage back then. And they would take 
the prevailing part of that wage, sometimes as much as $13 an hour, and place it in a retirement account. And I was working sometimes 90, 95 hours in a week. I almost was never coming home. Now, all that happens when you make that much an hour and you work that much overtime is that the government pays its, its balances its budget. Because uh, I think they were taking sometimes up to half of my check. But nonetheless, I was looking, I had all my faith and trust that if ever anything went bad, if ever everything got, got tight, you know, and we were, we were really struggling, I had this retirement account that had grown to a pretty large amount. Well, the time did come, and the Lord called me in January of that year, January 7th. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember the year, but I remember the day. That's weird, I'm sorry. But <clears throat> the Lord called me on January 7th. I went in, I gave 90 days notice. I gave 90 days notice. I was going to switch jobs. I was entering into Bible college. Uh, I specifically felt God calling and directing me. And I knew I was going to fall onto some financial hardship. We had just bought a house, but I had this huge nest egg built up in my retirement account. So I gave them 90 days notice because that's how long it takes to cash it out. So I gave him 90 days notice. I went in and talked to the guys and said, hey, I'm going to cash out my retirement. So in the interim, <clears throat> that would make up the difference till we got on our feet. By all my faith and trust was in a retirement account. 90 days, it didn't come. Then six months, it didn't come. Now I'm getting behind in house payments. And I'm starting to look to the Lord. Lord, I'm pretty sure that you told me to do this. What's going on? Well, the fellow who owned the company took not just mine. He had over 100 employees. He took it all. Every penny from every retirement account. And he paid his bills. You know what he did the next day? Declared bankruptcy. The day after that, he opened his business again under a new name. And we're all out. It's just gone. Poof. That guy lived in a big old fancy house. Man, my entire house would fit in his living room. But nonetheless, all my faith and trust was in that retirement account. All of a sudden, that's gone. Doesn't exist. And all my plans were based on that. But now, what did it cause me to do? It caused me to put my faith and trust where it should have been in the first place. With our Lord. With Jesus Christ. And that's why Isaiah is doing this example. And Judah sees him. And the Lord says, listen, those people you're putting your faith and trust in are going to look just like Isaiah. Silly old naked men. No power. Walking, you know, however far it was going to be back to Assyria. To be put to death in some weird way. And that's the people you're putting your faith and trust in. What God is calling them to is faith and trust in him. And we get to the middle of Isaiah, you get to hear the rest of the story. So you got to hang in there. But Judah is going to stand alone, and ultimately, they're going to have to put their eyes on the Lord. And we get to about chapter 36, we're going to see why. So hang in there. We're headed that way. This is what he's talking to now. He wants Judah to realize. In verse 6, And the inhabitants of the territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, how shall we escape? That's the words of Judah. 
We're standing alone. What are we going to do? Who's going to save us? I'm reminded of the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Standing before the most powerful man in the world at the time, Nebuchadnezzar. And as they stood before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar said, You guys haven't done right by me. And who is going to save you from my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, O king, live forever. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow. And what happened? God showed up. They're cast into the fiery furnace, and the Lord is there. You and I, Kathy and I, we went through a fiery furnace during that period of time. And during that period of time, I'd love to tell you that Kathy and I went through the fiery furnace, and God miraculously spared everything. But that wouldn't be the truth. We lost it all. We lost every single thing we had. Guys with nice little black suits and and sunglasses came, and they took our keys, and they took boats, and they took houses, and they took everything. They took it all. But God was still there. And I remember calling out to the Lord and thinking, God, for the first time in my life, I know I'm doing what you're calling me to do. Why is all this happening? And all the Lord spoke back to me was, Jackie, do you love me more than this? All your stuff, you still love me? Even if it costs everything? And so I said, I still love you. And we continued on. And the Lord did incredible and great things. But that's the place where He brought us to let go. Sometimes you go in the fire and God puts a fire out. Sometimes you go in the fire and God just stands beside you in the fire. But the fire didn't burn up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fire didn't burn up Kathy and I. It just burned up my stuff. It was going to burn anyway. And great news, God gave me more stuff. It's only stuff. But God did an incredible work in through that. And that's what he's going to do in you. But if your faith and trust is in something else, Egypt, if your faith and trust is in Ethiopia, well, they're going to be walking naked in captivity just like everyone else until we realize our faith and trust needs to be on the Lord. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 20. Now, when we get to chapter 21, here's a nice little tidbit of information for you. This is why... The skeptics have such a hard time with Isaiah because they can't really explain any of these things. For example, Isaiah chapter 21, verse 1. The burden against the wilderness of the sea. It's a common term known to be indicative of Babylon. So this is God's judgment of Babylon. Oh, just one small matter. When Isaiah wrote this, Babylon was nothing. Babylon was barely a little city just getting by. But he's going to talk about the great Babylon in chapter 21. Listen, he says, As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Get up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. All is sighing. 
I have made, or all its sighing I have made to cease. Wow, what's that all about? He's talking about Babylon, the great and terrible, the one who, who put all these nations down, who ruled with, over them with a rod of iron. All this, this great Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar said that I have built. Isaiah just said they're going to be laid waste by Elam and Media. Or you may know them by the other name, Persia and the Medes. The Medo-Persian Empire, which at this time was only two small cities, Elam and Media, he says is going to conquer the kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon that at this time didn't even rule yet. Isaiah laying out the judgment against Babylon that didn't exist until after Isaiah was gone. So... He's talking about this judgment, the Medo-Persians, which at this time were nothing, were going to lay them waste. Now in verse 3 we have Isaiah's heart. Now look at Isaiah's heart. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. This is the heart we ought to have for the lost. Isaiah in seeing this nation Babylon, which he, he didn't exist at the time, but in his vision he sees them and his heart is broken for the people. His heart is broken. That they're going to be conquered, that they're going to be no more. The death and destruction, the judgment that was going to fall upon a nation who really ultimately turns their back on the Lord and he's going to go on and tell us how it's going to happen. And his heart's broken. Is your heart broken for lost? When you turn on your TV and you read about the, the earthquake that, that happens in Haiti or you read about an earthquake that happens in, uh, in Peru or you read about the earthquake that happens somewhere else in the world. When you see the destruction of a tidal wave taking tens or hundreds of thousands of people, is your heart grieved for loss? Because that's how Isaiah's heart was. It was never, go get them, Lord. It was, ah, the loss of life. The burdened heart that God wants us to have. The heart that loves our enemies, right? The heart that that doesn't want to see anyone perish. Whose heart is that? It's God's. He says, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn, repent, and live. That's God's heart. So Isaiah's heart, we see in Isaiah's heart, the heart that God desires from us. Now in verse 5, he's going to focus to some of the background for what happens when Babylon falls. Babylon falls. We read about it. History tells us about it. The book of Daniel tells us about it. Well, what's going on? It says, prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. What was going on? The Medo-Persian army came and surrounded Babylon, and they were utterly unafraid. There's no way we could fall. There's no way. So they didn't arouse the army. They had a party. 
They prepared a table. They got all the implements of the temple from Jerusalem and they brought it out. Well, you remember. You remember uh, Belshazzar out there drinking it up and, and, and praising the gods of silver and the gods of gold. That's when the hand appeared and wrote on the wall, many, many tekel upharsin. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Today, your kingdom is stripped from your hands. While they were partying, they lost it all. Listen, when Babylon fell, the average person in the city didn't even know they had been conquered for three days. It fell without a battle. The Medo-Persian army surrounded it and they had this river that flowed through Babylon. And so the Medo-Persians, they, they took the river and they began to divert it. And the water level in the river dropped. And as the water level in the river dropped, they noticed that the bars and the gates that were under the city where the river flew or flowed through had not even been locked. They were left open. And they just walk in. Everybody's partying. Everybody's having a celebration. And they just walked in and took over. Just like that. So Isaiah says, listen, you, you're partying. Anoint the shield. What's he talking about? They're waxing. They're shining their swords and shining their shields. You can't take us. And then in one night, it's over. Just like that, Babylon is going to fall. For thus has the Lord said to me, go set a watchman and let him declare what he sees. Well, what does he see? And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. And then he cried, a lion, my Lord. When you read the book of Daniel, it'll tell you who's the lion. The lion is the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Their insignia was a lion and they were known as the, the, that lion, that lion, the lion of gold. We're going to see it in the prophecies of Daniel. You'll see it as a great lion uh, picturing in the beast the way that God sees the kingdoms of the world. He sees Babylon as a lion. So it's, it's looking at or seeing this lion of the, emperor, the empire of Babylon. And he said, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. And I sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, if you study Revelation, that ought to stick out. That exact same phrase is in Revelation 18.2. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Only remember, when we look at the city of Babylon in the Bible, we're sometimes looking like we are here at the traditional kingdom or the traditional place. But in the book of Revelation, it's a false religious system. In the book of Revelation, it's a commercial system. Babylon, tale of two cities. Babylon, Jerusalem. Babylon is the city of rebellion against the Lord. Jerusalem, the city surrendered unto the Lord. So as we look at this, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. We need to look forward. The kingdom has fallen here, but there's another falling of Babylon, yet future. Yet future that Isaiah is hinting at. Babylon will fall again. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. By the way, I'll recommend another book to you. The book is called The Two Babylons by Reverend Hislop. It deals with the fact that every false religious counterfeit system 
in the world has its foundation at Babylon. The Tower of Babel, where Babylon began, all the way through its history, you can trace all world religions back to Babylon. And so he's saying all these carved images will be destroyed. Oh, my threshing and my grain, oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Isaiah is saying, hey, my heart's breaking, my heart hurts. Nonetheless, I have shared with you what God has shared with me. Talking about the judgment of a nation that doesn't even exist at the time he writes it. Now he goes on, verse 11. The burden against Duma. Duma is Edom. Edom. The Edomites were the, the um, relatives of Esau. They were descendants of Esau. So this is another term for the Edomites, the burden against Duma. It's one of the chief cities of Edom. He calls to me out of Seir. It's a mountain range in Edom. Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Wow, that's weird, huh? He's saying, listen, watchman, watchman, what's going on? What do you see? What's happening? And he says, the morning comes and also the night. The morning comes and also the night. May you look forward, if you, if you really want to spiritualize these things, you can look all the way to, to the return of Jesus Christ. The morning comes, so does the night. There's always a period of time where night rules before morning dawns. The morning of the Lord's return and the, and the rule or the attempted rule of the enemies of the Lord. The same thing he's saying here to Edom. Listen, listen guys. Assyria is past, but Babylon is coming. The Edomites thought, well, now that Assyria is beginning to fade away, we're good to go. Uh, eh, bad answer. Night is past, but the dawn is coming. Assyria is going away, but Babylon is coming right on their heels. There'll be a brief respite, but Edom is immediately going to be conquered by the Babylonians as well. So he says, return, come back. Then he goes on to the next woe, the woe to Arabia. He says, the burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia, you will lodge. Oh, you traveling companies of the Dedanites. Now in Arabia, there are two main tribes, Sheba and Dedan. They become uh, prominent. They become, whoop, I'm throwing all my stuff on the ground. They become prominent in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We see uh, the, the battle of Gog and Magog. The scripture will talk about Sheba and Dedan. And we know that that's also Arabia. It's the, the area of Arabia. And ultimately, the scripture declares to us that Arabia is going to complain about Russia, Turkey, and Iran and Iraq when they attack against the nation of Israel. So... The Arabians are going to stand, not really stand, they're not going to defend Israel, but they're at least going to be verbal about not liking the fact that Israel has been attacked. By the way, all those treaties are in place. That battle could happen at any time. In fact, it may happen as soon as Israel decides to go blow up those nuclear test sites in Iran. Who's supporting Iran? Who's backing Iran? Who's giving them money and giving them technology? Russia. 
Russia, Turkey's looking for a place to belong. They didn't really belong in NATO. NATO was never really happy to have them. They never really could get along with the, the Soviet Union at the time when they were great and powerful. But now this, this deal is arising between Iran, Russia, Turkey, the same nations the Scripture talks about in the book of Ezekiel for the Gog-Magog invasion. So uh, keep tuned in. That's something that we may yet see in our lifetime as uh, these nations go against Israel and are not conquered by Israel's hands, but by God's hands. So we'll, we'll keep tuned in for that. But here as we look at Arabia. In the forests of Arabia and the traveling companies of the Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. Same way, all these nations surrounding Israel are falling. They're going to fall to Assyria. They're going to fall to Babylon. They're going to fall to the Medo-Persians. And they're going to fall to Alexander the Great. All of those kingdoms are coming. All of those battles lie on the front. And so the Lord lays out for them that they'll be fleeing from the sword. But listen in verse 16. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year... According to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. Sargon, the king of Assyria, conquered him one year later, 716 B.C. 716 B.C., a year after, a year according to the year of a hired man means a strict year. Strict year. A hired man paid attention to his year. He wanted to get paid for every day. So, in a strict year, a year from the time when this prophecy was given... About 716 B.C., Kedar falls, Arabia falls to the hands of the Assyrians. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. So because of the battle, losing the battle to Assyria, Arabia is going to be in a weakened state, and they'll stay in that weakened state for many hundreds, if not thousands of years through various battles, not only with Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persian, and the Grecian empires, really almost coming into the current time when they discovered black stuff under the sand. And then everything changed, right? So, But up until that time, they stay in a diminished capacity in the land. Now, chapter 22, folks, we might actually make it. Chapter 22, listen to this. The burden against the valley of vision. Chapter 22 is focused on the burden against or looking toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the valley of the vision. He's talking about Jerusalem. This is given to King Hezekiah when it was Hezekiah versus Shennacherib. The Assyrian armies are outside of Jerusalem as Isaiah presents this to Hezekiah. They're ready. They're threatening. They've already taken Egypt. They've already taken Ethiopia. All the places that they trusted in have fallen. And now Isaiah has this word to bring to Jerusalem. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? Yeah, if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, you will discover they don't have houses like we have houses. They don't have a porch. They don't have a patio. You know where their patio is? On the roof. You go out, walk up, 
onto the roof. It is a compact city built tightly together. Building, 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 building. If you're going to have a patio and only obviously you're the guy on top that's going to have the patio, you'll have space on the roof. Still today, if something's going on, where do the people go? They rush up to their roofs and look around because from their roof, they can see all around Jerusalem. Same way it is today, it was then. So he's saying, hey, what's, what's going on? All you guys are running to your rooftops. You are full of noise. A tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I say, look away from me, and I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. So they're going to face a siege. They're not going to be killed by the sword. They're going to be killed in a variety of other ways. Starved at some point while they face the siege of Shennacherib. All around the city, everywhere they look, are chariots, horses, army, 185,000 strong, surrounding Jerusalem, ready to take it at any moment. Verse 5, For it is the day of trouble, and the treading down and perplexity, by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Now Elam, now remember Elam is Persia, Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. They came alongside and, and fought against uh, Jerusalem during that time. And it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and of horsemen set themselves in array at the gate, ready for battle. Ready for battle. Now you notice it said in verse 5, By the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls. He's going to get into some specific issues of how Jerusalem is going to try to fortify themselves, take care of themselves. In verse 8, He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Hey, you put all your hope in these other people, all your faith that they were going to be here to bail you out. But who's standing with you, Judah? Who's here? Nobody. Judah put their their hope and their faith in the house of the forest, but they didn't come. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. Keep that in mind. The gathering together of the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. That actually took place. While Shennacherib set his siege machine against Jerusalem, they would tear down houses to fortify the walls. Tear down houses, fortify the walls. So they're, they're making plans. They're making plans. They're trying to make the wall strong. They've got alliances in all these places. Let's see what the Lord has to say. Then he says in verse 11, You have made a reservoir between two walls. For the water of the old pool, you've made a reservoir. Hezekiah's tunnel. 1,777 feet. From the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. Hezekiah said, we need a tunnel. Shennacherib's coming. If they cut us off from water, we're done for. So they dug a tunnel. They needed to dig the tunnel fast. 
So they set one group of diggers to the Gihon Spring. And they began digging toward the Pool of Siloam. And he set another group of diggers to the Pool of Siloam. And they began digging toward the Gihon Spring. By the way, that is the most crooked tunnel you'll ever spend any time in your life. For 1,777 feet, it wanders to the right, to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west. But you know what happened with that tunnel? They met pick to pick. Ping. Hey, John, is that you? Yeah, Fred, is that you? Without what we have today to utilize, they dug. Not only did they dig, but they dug at the proper elevation and grade so that water would flow from the Gihon Spring all the way to the Pool of Siloam, and it still flows today. And you can walk that tunnel when you go to Jerusalem. You can go down to the Gihon Spring and climb in this tunnel. It's crazy, by the way. Anybody ever done it? A couple of folks? Yeah. We're going to take a trip to Israel here pretty quick. And when we do, well, pretty quick is relative. But we're going to take a trip to Israel together, hope to bring as many people as will come. And I promise you, we'll go through Hezekiah's tunnel. The water is about knee high to waist high. You wear just sandals and your shorts. And it is as pitch black and dark as it can possibly be. You used to walk through it with candles. They don't let you in there with candles anymore. So now you use flashlights. That works better. If a candle gets wet, no lights at all. The good news is you can't really get lost because it's only going one place. To the pool of Siloam. This is the time when Hezekiah built the tunnel. But you see God's problem with Judah? It's that next sentence. They, bit, they, they, they made a reservoir between two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker. Nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. They didn't call upon the Lord. They fortified the walls. They, they built this tunnel so they could bring water. They did all this stuff. Busy, busy, busy doing all these things. Preparing for this battle against Shennacherib and, and Isaiah saying, but you haven't called out to the Lord. You haven't called out on him. Folks say, you might as well make that same proclamation against every single one of us. Because in any given day, when we're faced with problems, probably our, our habit is to solve it, come up with a plan, overcome the challenge and move forward and never give a second thought to whether or not we sought the Lord. But Isaiah said, this is God's problem with Jerusalem. You haven't sought me. Well, they're going to be in this siege for four years. This is the, actually, this is the fourth year of the siege. We get to chapter 36, we'll see what God does. The good news, to give you a little snippet, Judah calls out to the Lord. And it's a good thing. But we, again, have to hang out till we get to chapter 36 because he's not going to talk about it here. He goes on in verse 12. And in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for the girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. God says, I'm calling for feast. I'm calling for a fast, and you call the feast. I'm calling for prayer, and you call the party. That's what they did. 
The Lord said, sackcloth and ashes, fasting, calling upon the name of the Lord for his deliverance. But rather, you've got your own plans and you're partying. You've got your own ideas and you're having a feast. And the Lord says, what about me? You should be calling on my name. You should be calling out to me. Verse 14, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts. Surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Oh, so the Lord is saying, without me, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high? Who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Shebna, the treasurer of the king of Judah. Now the Lord's going to call out him by name. Shebna was a foreigner. The scripture tells us he was a foreigner, and he <coughs> was the treasurer. He had risen to the position of treasurer. And while this is all going on with Shennacherib, he decides he's going to carve himself the most ornate tomb imaginable. If I'm going to die, they're going to bury me in a sweet place. So he puts all his effort, all his money into designing himself a tomb. And God's not very happy about it. Indeed, the Lord said, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, And he will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. And there you will die. And there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office. And from your position, I will pull you down. Shebna, the treasurer, God's going to strip him of his office. He's going to be pulled down. The Lord's going to elevate another man who's going to fulfill that office and provide for us, at the same time, a picture of Jesus Christ. Shebna, therefore, becomes a shadow, a picture of the Antichrist, ruling for himself and able to offer nothing but death all around him. But God strips him down and raises up for him another in his place. Let's take a look. He goes on, and continuing in verse 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna. Shebna's robe he's going to put on him. Eliakim means God will raise you up. Hilkiah means my portion is with Yahweh. My portion is with Yahweh. So these are two guys, two servants of the Lord called to specifically fulfill a role, Eliakim is going to take Shebna's place. Uh, continuing in verse 21, and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. <clears throat> the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder and he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Anybody study Revelation? Because that's where that verse come. That verse is going to be responded to in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, speaking of Jesus Christ being given the keys of David. 
And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So Eliakim becomes a shadow of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment, a a picture of what he's going to do. Stripping down one who was self-serving and raising up another. God will raise up. Eliakim comes to his place. And the Lord honors him, gives him the keys of David, the treasurer, and what he opens. No one came to David except that he opened the door. And if he shut the door, nobody came through. How do you get to the Father? Through Jesus Christ. Is there any other way? Nope. If he shuts the door, you're not coming through. If he opens the door, you come through. The keys of David, here pictured in Isaiah chapter 22. And then he says in, in verse 23, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups and all the pitchers. He's saying, hey, they're going to hang all these things on Eliakim. He's going to rule, he's going to reign, and God says, when I set him up, he's set. And then he turns his attention back to, uh, <clears throat> back to Shebna in verse 25. So in that day, says the Lord, the peg that is fashioned in the secure place will be removed. The peg that will be fashioned is Eliakim. The peg that is, is Shebna. God says, I'm going to cut Shebna off. The peg that's fastened at this time will be removed and cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And so all this directed toward Jerusalem, toward Judah, specifically naming out the treasure at the time and God's specific judgment against him. And then, we always say the best for last, he begins his focus on Tyre. On Tyre in chapter 23. Will we make it, you say? I don't know. If we don't, we'll pick it up where we leave off. Chapter 23, the burden against Tyre. Well, you ships of Tarshish, for it's laid to waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus, it will be revealed even unto them. God's judgment against Tyre. Now listen, Tyre is a Phoenician city. A city built around a great navy. In fact, they travel all around the world for their time, trading with nations as far away as what would be called Britain one day. Trading, they were powerful, they had a lot of money, they had a great navy. Nobody had a navy like the Phoenicians. Now God's going to get a little more specific than he does in chapter 23 in Ezekiel 26. So why don't you flip over with me to Ezekiel 26. And we'll take a look at the specifics of Ezekiel 26. And then we'll wrap it up in uh, Isaiah 23. Now Ezekiel said, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken. And who was the gateways to the people? Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. So their problem was they were filled with pride and they boasted against the northern kingdom that God sent into judgment for uh, their rebellion against him. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, 
And I will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. Keep that in mind, many nations. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. And it shall be a place for spreading nests in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become plunder for the nations. Also, her daughter villages, which are in the fields, will be slain by the sword. And they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and an army, with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots. When he enters your gates, as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come against Tyre and siege the nation for 13 years. In fact, he's going to be so long sieging Tyre that he's actually going to break off and come back again. But he doesn't want to let Tyre be. So at the end of 13 years, Nebuchadnezzar is finally going to reach the point where he breaks down the wall and enters into the city of Tyre. And he will have no joy. Why? Because the Phoenician people got in their boats and moved the city to an island offshore. The people who were still left in the city, Nebuchadnezzar slaughters. He throws down the walls, throws down their columns. He destroys the city utterly. But he is not willing to try to fight them out on that island. So he leaves. That's the battle of Nebuchadnezzar against Tyre. But wait, the Bible goes on. Listen, it has said, he will do this, he will do that, he will do this. And in verse 12, what does it say? They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, your soil in the midst of the water. When did that happen? 332. 332, Alexander the Great comes against Tyre. And he comes to that island. He wants that island. But he doesn't have a very good navy. So, he turns the island into a peninsula. How's he do that? He takes the whole city and throws it in the water and piles dirt upon it and builds a causeway all the way to the island so he can walk his army into the city and utterly destroy it. And that's what he does. The Bible says right here they're going to throw your city in the midst of the, of the sea. And Alexander the Great comes along and throws the city in the midst of the sea. And he builds this ramp out to the island. Let me tell you, historians forever thought that this island was a peninsula. 
because of what Alexander, until they started digging and realizing, man, this whole part is made up of pieces of their town. That Alexander laid in the water and turned this island into a peninsula, walked out, and utterly destroyed Tyre. But listen, there's even more. There's even more because Ezekiel 26 goes on to tell us not only that, not only are they going to do those things, but then it says, And I will put an end to the sound of your songs, the sound of your harps will be heard no more, and I will make you like the top of a rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets, and you will never be rebuilt, for I the Lord have spoken, says the Lord God. Well, Alexander the Great wipes them out, and they're pretty much a rock, but not actually a complete fulfillment until 1190 A.D. The Crusaders come in and the Muslims are are trying to rebuild and and establish a a base there. So they come in, the Crusaders come in and wipe them out. And they set their own camp there. And the Muslims come back and chase the Crusaders off. But now the Muslims say this whole place is defiled because the Crusaders were here. So they literally scrape down to the rock cast everything into the sea, and today, the only thing it's used for is laying out nets. Just like God said. You know what's interesting? In the middle of that place, there's a fresh water spring. You have some kind of idea how important fresh water is in a desert? But they have never built around that spring again. Ever. And if you ask them why, they will say, I don't know. But the Bible says, because God said, you're never going to build there again. And so they never build there again. Now, as we we button it up in Isaiah 23, he says now in verse 2, But still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled... And on great waters, the grain of Sihor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue. She is a marketplace for the nations. Now, as we consider this, as far as we're going to go tonight, as we consider this, keep in mind, Tyre becomes a picture for us of what the Scriptures um, indicate or, or begin to establish in the book of Revelation that Babylon is a big old merchant place, full of money, full of people who sold human souls, they, it, was a, it was a capitalistic system. Capitalistic system. But as we look at Isaiah 23, as we go through to its conclusion, you're also going to see in Isaiah some very specific prophecies where God says, hey, this is how much time, this is how many years, this is how it's going to take place. Why does God tell us that? So that we know He is the Lord. He knows The end from the beginning. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time and we could spend just taking a look at the prophetic word, God. The prophetic word. I'm so blown away because uh, (coughs) statisticians have said that the probability of this prophecy against Tyre being fulfilled is 1 in 175 million. Yet it was fulfilled to the letter. To the letter. Why? Because you are God. 
And you know what's going to happen. And if you knew what was going to happen then, and we can read prophecy in Isaiah and read it like history. But when Isaiah wrote it, those nations didn't even exist yet. But you're going to fulfill your perfect plan, Lord God. You're going to do your perfect work. And so as we study, as we look forward to those things that yet lie on the horizon, Father, fill us with hope that you are God and that you will keep your promises even as you have written them. They will be absolutely true. So, Lord God, we pray. Father, fill us with that hope, faith for our past, hope for our future, love for today. Lord God, help us to see, help us to know, help us to realize you give us these things, this word, as examples to us. We wouldn't make the same mistakes they make, but even more that we would know that what you say is what will happen. So, Lord, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go ahead and close in worship. Sunday nights we do a little bit extended worship. So if you're able to hang out with us, we invite you to stay. If not, uh, God bless you guys. If you can hang out, then we'll have a neat time of fellowship afterwards. God bless you and go in peace.